Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Saviour, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. I guess many of you have had the experience of uh, moving house, perhaps buying a house, and moving into a house that has been decorated by someone else. Uh, the first, in fact, the only time uh, we bought a house, uh, we moved uh, in, and you could tell straight away who decorated it. The, the dining room was two different shades of orange. Uh, every room in the house was a different colour. Uh, pinks, blues, every colour of the rainbow as you went round, round the house. It was as far away from reflecting our character as you could get, and it was pretty obvious which of the couple that sold it to us uh, had been in charge of decor. Were, the, the husband was a computer programmer. He was quiet, lovely, uh, but quite reserved. Uh, his wife uh, was a primary school teacher. And when we were, were shown around the house, she was just bubbling with energy. She had ribbons in her hair, sort of floral clothes. Clearly, she'd been in charge uh, of the colour scheme. Uh, what was going on? The house was reflecting the owner. Okay? She had turned the house into her own image. Uh, she had designed it to to reflect the kind of person she was, to show her values, her character. Uh, But the first day that we moved into it, it didn't at all reflect our character, our values, our style. And a number of years later, it's now basically kind of beige and white, which is much more kind of, you know, George and me. Uh, Just look with me at 1 Timothy 3. Just turn over the page, 1 Timothy 3. Uh, We come across another house. 1 Timothy 3. And in many ways, these are the key verses of the letter. If you want to understand what's going on in 1 Timothy, why Paul wrote it, 1 Timothy 3 and verses 14 and 15. Uh, Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Uh, Paul is wanting to come to Timothy. Paul is the apostle, as he introduced himself in verse 1. He is one of those dozen plus him, so 13 or so, uh, men who are the authoritative spokesmen for Christ. They are the ones who uh, saw Christ risen from the dead and were appointed specifically by him to be the, the, the founders of the church. And he's written this letter to Timothy, who is the next generation down. In fact, he calls Timothy... Uh, in verse 2, my true child in the faith. Now, faith. Now, Paul isn't his biological dad. 
Timothy, we read from elsewhere in, in, in the New Testament, uh, had a Jewish and Greek heritage. We had he mixed heritage. Uh, his mom and grandma were Jewish, so he was taught the Bible from his earliest years, but his dad seems to be a Greek. And so Timothy would have not have been, not have been accepted as a kind of kosher Jew. And he becomes, as it were, Paul's spiritual son. If you read the book of Acts and, and many of the New Testament letters, in fact, you find Paul and Timothy often working together. Uh, he's his psychic, if you like, his protege. And Timothy's been left in Ephesus, a uh, city just sort of on the, the Mediterranean uh, basin, in order to sort out uh, the church that Paul has planted. If we were to read the book of Acts, we'd find that Paul spent several years in Ephesus uh, planting this church, establishing the congregation, but it, it's not finished. Uh, in a way, I find that hugely encouraging. You, you may know that Christ Church Central here uh, has, has only been around for 18 months or, or so, and there are lots of things that just aren't really in place. There are lots of things that don't work very well. There are lots of things we're not doing that would be great to do. Uh, lots of things that I feel I ought to be doing that I haven't got to. And there are just lots of ways that we are far from established as a church. So there's some sort of encouragement in realising that even Paul, the apostle, having spent two, maybe three years in Ephesus, still felt there was more to do uh, in that church too. And so Paul wants to come and join Timothy, who he's left caring for the Ephesian churches, but, but he's worried he might be delayed, verse 15. And so until he can get there, 1 Timothy is a letter, if you look at verse 15, that tells Timothy and those reading it with him how they ought to behave in the household of God. And the household of God uh, is explained straight away as the church. 1 Timothy is a letter about how to behave in the church. What is church life meant to look like. Uh, household word there is a bit of a sort of, uh, as a bit of a double meaning. In the Old Testament, the house of God, the house of God it was the temple. There's no special word for temple in the Old Testament, it's just the word house. So God's house in the, in the Old Testament was the temple, the place where he specially dwelled and met with his people. And as we move to the New Testament, we find that that is the church. The church is called the temple of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit dwells in us, his people, rather than in a building. But a household also means a family, doesn't it? If, if, you, if you met someone in London and they said, children, if you met someone in London and they said they worked in the Queen's household, it wouldn't mean they necessarily lived in the same house as the Queen. It would mean that they worked for her. Okay, perhaps they were one of her servants, brought her bacon butties in the morning in bed or Weedabix or whatever it is the Queen has for breakfast. A household is a, a sort of family. And so Paul wants Timothy and those overhearing Timothy read the letter to know how, to, how, to, how God's family is meant to function, how God's church is meant to function. And that's why, we're not going to obviously cover it all this morning, that's why he's got instructions about how the family is to be led. If you just look up at the, even just the chapter titles of chapter 3, qualifications for overseers or elders, qualifications for deacons. How is the church to be cared for? Who's meant to be in charge? There's instructions in chapter 2 about what you might call the kind of worship service. You know, what's meant to go on? What are prayers meant to look like? Who's allowed to do what? As instructions in, in uh, the back end of the letter, chapter five, uh, about how to care uh, for widows and those who suffer. There's instructions about money and how to use our wealth. Uh, the whole letter is concerned with, with the church running rightly. Uh, and why is that so important? Well, look at verse 15 again of chapter three. The church 
how is it described? The end of verse 15 is a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now we'll look at those verses in more detail in a few weeks' time when we get to chapter 3. But, but it, I think it's, it's helpful to understand now as we begin the letter uh, what Paul is talking about. The pillar and buttress of the truth. Again, he's using a building image. Now a pillar, what do pillars do, children? Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly right. That, that is exactly right. Pillars hold up the roof, don't they? We haven't got any pillars in here, but pillars hold up things, don't they? So that it's the church that is to hold up the truth, the message of the gospel. Okay. But, but it's also a buttress. Now, buttresses, we don't, unless you've got a very posh house, you're very unlikely to have buttresses in your house, children. Uh, buttresses are kind of supports, okay, that also they, they sort of keep things from falling down. You might have seen old church buildings, like beautiful cathedrals, where buttresses stick out from the ground up the top and hold the building up. What Paul is saying is, is that the church is, is both to hold high the gospel so everyone can see it, but also protect the gospel, hold it up, keep it safe as it were. It is the church's job to proclaim and protect the gospel, okay, the truth that God has entrusted to us. Now, that, that actually is, is often the opposite way around, or rather we often think of that, I think, the other way around. We think, well, it, it's the gospel that creates the church. You know, you believe the gospel and you become part of the church. So if you like, the gospel is the pillar, the buttress, the thing that, that, that keeps the church safe. As long as you preach the gospel, the church stays safe. Now that is true, but it's not what Paul is saying here. It is true that if you preach the gospel rightly, people become Christians and Christians are kept safe. So in a sense, the gospel also supports the church. But that's not what he's saying here. Here he's saying, if you get the church wrong, Okay, if you get behaviour in the household of God wrong, you're in danger of losing the gospel, the truth of the gospel. Lose the church, lose the gospel, is Paul's warning. And that suddenly makes the kind of topics that Paul addresses in 1 Timothy far more serious. It's not that Paul is just a slightly kind of grumpy headmaster who, who, who wants to write a letter and, and make, things, make sure things are being done as he would want them done. Now, his concern in appointing elders and deacons, different types of church leaders, his concern as to the role of women in worship, his concern as to how we care for widows, is ultimately that the gospel is held up and out. If you lose the church, you're in danger of losing the gospel. So three things about God's house very quickly this morning to orientate us. We're in chapter one now, we'll stay the rest of our time in verses one to 11. Three ways to make sure uh, we rightly dwell in God's house. Uh, firstly, just in verses 1 and 2, we must know the owner. Verse 1 and 2, we must know the owner. Uh, a number of years ago on, uh, I think it was the BBC, there used to be a show called Changing Rooms. Uh, I'm not sure if it's still on. Uh, my, since having kids, my TV consumption has dropped dramatically. Um, but the, the idea of Changing Rooms was you would organise for your friend or your husband or wife to go away for a couple of days and then the BBC with their designers uh, would come in and they would revolutionise one room of your house. And then the last 10 minutes of the show were that, you know, the wife coming home, the husband opening the door, and ideally she walks in and is blown away by her beautiful new dining room or bedroom or whatever. Uh, unsurprisingly, sometimes it went horrendously wrong. Uh, on one occasion, uh, there was a guy called Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen who, who looked like a kind of musketeer, long curly hair and big sleeves. And if, if he walked into your house, you were in a whole host of trouble. Uh, on one occasion, he did a kid's playroom and he painted it 
uh, no exaggeration, 28 different shades of brown. Uh, he made them a toy box, these children, a toy box in the shape of a coffin, uh, which the owner described later as an absolute death trap. Uh, when the mum came back, she was furious with the husband. Uh, it was only better by another episode where a friend thought she'd uh, treat her, her mate. So I got someone to distract her for a couple of days, and the team came in to change the lounge. And again, this same designer, Lawrence Llewellyn Bowling, painted this, this woman's lounge uh, pink, uh, put in kind of lacy curtains on the windows, uh, changed all the lighting so it was red, red lighting. So when this woman came back, her front room, which had big glass doors that opened out onto the street, had lace curtains and red lighting. And she was so furious that, uh, in the article I read, she hadn't spoken to her friend four years later. Now, what was the problem there? What was the problem with those designs? The problem was that the designers didn't know the owners. Uh, the people in charge of decorating and structuring the house didn't really know the character of the owner. And that's why I think, verse 1, straight away, Paul introduces us to the character, the true nature of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Saviour, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. God, our Saviour, Christ Jesus, our hope. Now, actually, they're, they're quite unusual ways of describing God. It is not that common in the New Testament that God is described as our Saviour. I think God, by God there, he means the Father, uh, in particular, God the Father, and then we've got Christ, who's the Son. But Paul hasn't just sort of reached for his um, uh, uh, dictionary and just picked out a couple of words that would sort of suit. I think he's chosen describing God as Saviour and Christ as our hope deliberately. Uh, those are the, the two titles, if you like, th that will best combat the errors that are beginning to grow up in Ephesus. Uh, so God, our Saviour, as you read through the letter, uh, what we begin to see is that a bunch of teachers seem to have slipped in to Ephesus and are beginning to teach, well, that there is all sorts of rules we need to obey in order to be properly saved. Uh, we'll meet them uh, later in the, in the letter. Uh, so I don't want to dig in too deeply now. But in chapter 4, just to give you a little taste, there are those who say that you mustn't marry. Uh, there are those who say you must abstain from certain types of food. You must do this if you want to be a real Christian. You must do this if you want to be a real Christian. There are those, in other words, who are creating themselves as the kind of spiritual elite. Now, I, my guess would be they, they don't deny that God needs to forgive us as well. They wouldn't completely deny that we need to be rescued and forgiven our sin. But in order to be really saved... You also need to keep this bunch of rules. And so Paul reminds them straight away, no, if you think you're something, you've misunderstood it, it's God alone who saves us. God is our saviour. It's a great truth, by the way, of the Christian faith. On the last day, when you get to heaven, and the question is asked, why are you here? Not, not one percentage of the answer will be, well, because I... dot dot dot. 100% of the answer is, because God rescued me. God the Father chose me before time began. God the Son, Jesus, died on the cross for me. God the Holy Spirit gave me new life, opened my eyes so I believed the gospel. Father, Son and Spirit working together to save me. Salvation is by God alone. That's why we often sing about grace. 
Yeah, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. To say we're saved by grace alone is simply to say we're saved by God alone. God is our saviour. And Christ Jesus is our hope. If some in, in, in Ephesus are beginning to teach that there are just these extra steps you need to take in order to be really properly fully saved, others are beginning to teach that, well, what really matters is the here and now. By the time we get to chapter 6, we'll see a whole group who are really concerned about possessions. They're gaining wealth. In fact, in the, in the second letter that Paul writes to Timothy, it seems that some people are teaching that the resurrection has already happened. That actually, you know, heaven is on earth now. There's no future glory to look, look forward to. But actually now is the time of God's full blessing. It's very strange to our ears, but some are teaching it. And so Paul says, no, Jesus is our hope. If you think you have something now, if you think now is the time of blessing, you've really misunderstood the gospel. Our true hope is found in Christ, in part because he is saviour too, but also I think Paul is saying, look, he is where we're headed towards. Okay? The great reward for Christians when they go to heaven, even greater than being free from sin, even greater than not being scared anymore of death, of being healed from our diseases, the greatest reward will be knowing Christ kind of makes sense doesn't it what, you know, what is the greatest gift that God can give you we'll ask another question what is the greatest thing in existence children I wonder if you could have any present in the world what you what you would what you would ask for okay if it came to Christmas and mum and dad said look money is no object you can have anything you like any toy you like any animal you like if you want a pet elephant or a pet monkey that's fine anything in the world what what you would choose well, however brilliant that thing you're thinking of right now is, okay, the best computer ever or the funniest monkey or whatever it might be, all those things ultimately are just things God has made. And so God is even greater than the things that he has made. So what is the best thing that God can give you? Himself. And that's what he does give us. He gives us himself, particularly in the person of Jesus Christ. That's how we come to know God, through knowing Jesus. He is our hope. He is what we're looking forward to. And so if Christchurch Century is going to be a church that is rightly ordered, if we're going to get life in the household of God right in, uh, in Leeds, then we need to make sure that, that church, our life as a church, both when we meet together on a Sunday, but also just our family life, reflects the true owner. Do our lives say, yeah, God is a saviour? Do our lives say, yeah, our, our real hope isn't our house, or career, or our possessions, but our real hope is Christ Jesus. If you get God wrong, church is going to go wrong. If we, if we get the character of God wrong, we misunderstand who he is, church will go wrong, and therefore the gospel will go wrong. Remember the, the pattern in chapter 3? If you get church life wrong, it'll lead to failing to protect and hold out the gospel. Well, there's a prior stage, get God wrong, and church will go wrong. If we see God not as our saviour, verse 1, but as our entertainer, then when we come together on a Sunday, the main thing we're going to be interested in is being, well, entertained. <laughs> a church must be fun. It must be exciting. It must be buzzy. I must go away feeling better than when I walk through the door. Well, in lots of ways, I hope you do, but that's not always going to be the case. Primarily, we come on a Sunday to meet God our saviour, not God our entertainer. Uh, neither is it God our genie. Uh, in some churches, even when they claim the name of Christ, some preachers uh, present God simply as a kind of, a bit like a cosmic Father Christmas. You ask and he delivers. You're ill, he'll make you better. 
Are you struggling financially? He'll make you wealthier. You're single? He'll give you a husband. God, our saviour. And not God, our genie. That's why, for example, I think, life in the household involves, in chapter 3, appointing uh, elders, men to preach the Bible rightly. Uh, In order that we are taught a right gospel. Not a gospel that has God answering our every need, like Cosmic Father Christmas, but God who is a saviour, who rescues us from sin, uh, rescues us from death. Again, it's part of getting household life right. Put the right people in the pulpit, as it were, the right people shepherding church life, and they should preach to you the right understanding of God. Uh, when I was a student, another group began, I have no idea if it still exists um, nowadays, uh, but it, it, for a while it was very popular, a student group. And what, what we noticed really quickly on campus, I was involved with the Christian Union on campus, what we realised very quickly is that when they did evangelism, that the message they, they spoke was very different to the one that that we were being kind of taught by UCCF and preaching at the CU Missions. And it wasn't that they were saying anything wrong, it's just it never quite got to talking about repenting of our sin or trusting in Jesus died for us. And we, we couldn't quite work out why we have these long conversations, we couldn't work out why, until eventually we looked at their Bible study notes. And their first set of Bible studies that you had to go through if you're going to be a member of their group were all about God. And they said lots of true things about God. God is loving, God is kind. But it never talked, the notes never talked about God being holy, for example. It never talked about God being angry at sin. So if you lose God being holy and angry at sin, well then when you come to try and preach a gospel message, what are you going to say? Why did Jesus die? Well, don't really know. He died because he loved us, but why? Don't really know. And so the cross would disappear. Typically, they talk more about getting to know God because he can fulfill your desires. He makes you feel at peace. It's not altogether untrue, but it's not the gospel. No God, uh, no gospel. So know the owner. Uh, Secondly, guard the front door. Verses three to seven, Timothy is told to guard the front door to the church. Verse 3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Uh, Some people have begun to teach, well, not the gospel that Christ entrusted to Paul. Uh, Some are deliberately teaching wrongly. So in verse 3, they're teaching a different doctrine, different gospel, if you like. Others, it's not so much that it's wrong, it's just irrelevant. Verse 4, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is of faith. Uh, It's not 100% clear what what exactly these people are teaching. The genealogies, the Old Testament is full of genealogies, lists of, you know, Noah was the son of dot, 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 and on they go. Um, It's it's probably not those they're teaching because they are part of the Bible. It's more likely that they, we've got books from the first century, where people created all sorts of myths about the Old Testament, stuff that's not in the Old Testament, but it's kind of related to it. So there's one book that tells you the names of all the 70 people who went down to Egypt with Joseph. There's another one that tells you all the names of Adam and Eve's other children the Bible doesn't tell you about. And certain Jewish groups were really pleased if they could trace their ancestry to one of these groups um, in the first century. So it might be that that's what's going on uh, in Ephesus. We're not sure. But Paul's problem with them It's not so much in the second case that it's false teaching. It's just speculation. It's not leading anywhere. 
Uh, later on, he'll call them myths. Uh, two types of wrong teaching. One is just false teaching, where you deny the truth and teach something's wrong. Uh, the other one is, is just irrelevant teaching. Uh, they look spiritual, but it's empty. And the tests uh, as to whether uh, teaching is true or, or, or false teaching, true or irrelevant teaching, are found in verses 4 and 5. Uh, these myths and speculations, what do they produce? Well, what they don't produce is, it's a strange phrase, isn't it, at the end of verse 4, stewardship from God that is by faith. That's a bit of a clunky phrase, stewardship from God uh, that is from faith. Uh, the word stewardship there is, is related to the, the household word that we saw earlier in, in chapter 3. It kind of means good order. This kind of wandering through weird genealogies and funny myths that, that, that you've made up, produces, it doesn't produce good order in the church. And secondly, what else does it not produce? Verse 5, the aim of our charge is love. It doesn't produce love. So people are not behaving rightly, as Paul wants the church to live, and people are not loving one another. Do you see, see what he's saying there? Doctrine, true doctrine, leads to love. And that's, that's a correction to two types of people. It's correction, first of all, to those who love doctrine for the sake of getting things right. Uh, that some of us are prone to this. We, we like reading big books. We like getting our theology right. We like knowing what the, the main message of Galatians is, that how to teach it. We like understanding what the problem was in Colossae, uh, in the Colossian letters, so that we can show others. We like being able to handle the Bible rightly. And we like it so that we can show we are smarter than other people. We like it to show that we know a lot. We like it because it puffs us up. So we have sort of right doctrine, but unless it leads to love, it's pointless. The aim of right doctrine is love. So if you're the kind of person who just wants to be right for the sake of being right, but actually all your knowledge isn't, isn't producing love, we need to think again. All the teaching we receive is meant to make us loving to God and to one another. But, but those words are also, I think, a correction to, to, to people who think, well, look, Christ wants us to love one another, so let's just downplay the teaching a little bit. Okay, let, let's just lighten up on the sermons. Let's just lighten up on the doctrine and concentrate on love. No, you can't grow the, the flowers of love, if you like, without the soil of true doctrine. It's in faithful teaching, faithful understanding of God's word that love comes. Doctrine, right doctrine, leads to love. It's not divisive it should lead to a loving congregation. And so Timothy is told not to let various people preach if they're not teaching the doctrine that Paul teaches. Warn them, charge church and Persians not to teach if they're going to teach differently. Part of a minister's responsibility, therefore, is to protect the pulpit. Now, most ministers are not as gifted as, as Timothy. Uh, no one is as gifted as Paul. There are no apostles nowadays. So, I'm afraid, particularly if you stay in Leeds, you're going to spend most of your life with just, no false humility here, just a pretty also-ran, run-of-the-mill ministers. Not many of us go to churches with kind of superstar preachers. And not many of us are in the churches of Tim Kellers or John Pipers or Kevin DeYoungs or Vaughan Robinsons or whoever your kind of hero might be. But, but the crucial thing is that the minister's job is to make sure that what is taught, even just by bog-sand ministers, is faithful to what is revealed in the Bible, what Paul was given and the other apostles. That is the crucial test for a church. Are they teaching what is entrusted down the generations in the scriptures to us? 
uh, the pulpit is to be guarded. Well, one way that happens, for example, is we, we don't just let anyone preach. Okay? You can't just come and have a crack if you fancy it. Uh, to become an elder in the denomination we're a part of, uh, you, you get pretty rigorously examined on your life and on your theology. So just yesterday I was down in London and another man was coming into ministry, uh, wanted to become a minister in the denomination, and he had to stand at the front of the room. We were all sat as it were, where you are now, and, and he was, loads of questions were thrown at him. Some of them were relatively straightforward. Tell us the Ten Commandments. Um, some a little bit harder. Tell us the message of Galatians. Uh, some were theological. And he had to be able to answer on his feet. What is the Lord's Supper? Why do we do it? Uh, on and on the questions went to check that his doctrine was right. Okay, it was quite a rigorous test. And that's what all the ministers have to go through in order to then be able to preach. It's guarding the front door. Because, ultimately, truth leads to love. So, uh, know the owner and guard the front door. Now, in in the rest of Paul's letter, uh, he's going to be full of advice about what what life ought to look like. Uh, He's going to give instructions for different groups. And, And there will be times, I suspect, particularly with the letter of 1 Timothy, there will be times when we think... Does it really matter, Paul? You know, does it really matter? Uh, Timothy is not a letter like uh, Philippians or Romans that just sort of expounds great doctrinal truths. There's lots about lifestyles. Uh, there's lots about sort of ordering churches. But ultimately, the aim, to, to finish where we began, is that the gospel is held out and up. And that should be our supreme concern. Uh, God is our saviour and Christ is our hope. And it's our job as a church to preach that to one another and to the world around. Uh, Every church in history has swayed from that at times. And so it is all our job to make sure that remains at the core of Christ Church Central. Uh, So Timothy... Uh, the letter of 1 Timothy, rather, is a letter uh, that, if you like, should be our our foundation stone as we begin to build a new church in Leeds. Uh, It's a good time to study it as we are still new uh, because many things are not yet in place. Uh, And our role is to build as those who are building with the word of God entrusted to us by God the Father and Christ the Son. Uh, So can I encourage you to pray? Uh, It's very easy to live your Christian life as an individual, a church becomes the petrol station you come to to be filled up a little bit on Sunday. Then you go out into the world and you come back next Sunday for a bit of a top-up. Church becomes a service to you rather than a household, a family. But if Paul is right, and he is, then actually your spiritual well-being, your spiritual health is going to be utterly inseparable from the health of the church that you're a part of. Your spiritual health is dependent on the person sat next to you. It's dependent uh, on those who stand at the front and preach and teach. It's dependent in time on those who become elders and deacons. Your spiritual health cannot be separated from the health of the household of God. So let's pray that God builds a healthy, godly, scripture-honouring household. Uh, Let me pray that right now. Uh, Our Father God, we praise you that you do not leave us alone in this world, but rather you bring us into a family. 
Uh, we praise you that it is uh, you alone who saved us, you alone who brought us in. Uh, we know that we did nothing but that every act of our salvation uh, lay in your hands. Uh, we want to pray uh, now that in these early days of Christchurch Central that you would build us to be a church that uh, finds its roots uh, in your word. Uh, a church that holds out and uh, up the gospel to the world around and to one another. Uh, protect us, we pray, from swaying from the truth. Uh, prevent us from being those who love doctrine but have no love or seek love without true doctrine. Uh, Father, our only hope is Jesus Christ. Uh, might we be a people uh, who say to the world around that it is in him that all the treasures of wisdom uh, are found. Above all, our Father, we pray that we will be a church that reflects you, our owner. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.